You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. All right, now it's time. We've been teasing it. Let's remember 2004. So the most important thing that happened in we 2004. We have to get theme music to remember some years. Yeah, we probably do. The most important thing that happened in 2004, a huge transaction, undoubtedly, the Sonics hiring me as a full-time employee. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, so this happened in, like, late July, a couple, you know, a, less than a couple months after I graduated UW. And then within three months, had won a championship ring from the storm <laughs> and just figured, yeah, that just happens all the time, right? When you uh-huh. work for a team, that's how it works. Maybe not so much. So the storm kind of put it all together. As we mentioned last week, they didn't make the playoffs in 2003. Uh, had super hampered by the knee injury that was eventually going to acquire a macro fracture. So despite uh, Lauren Jackson's MVP season, didn't make the playoffs. But the next year, they get much more experience. They had Betty Lennox through the expansion or the dispersal draft, I should say, of the Cleveland Rockers who had folded after that season. She becomes the number three player on the team, ends up the MVP of the finals. Also traded for Sharice Sam and Janelle Burst from Minnesota using the uh, lottery pick they got by missing the playoffs. And that core comes together second in the Western Conference, best point differential in the WNBA. Get a little bit of a break because L.A., the number one seed, the uh, the team that had been to the finals uh, three consecutive seasons and had won two championships in that span, losing to Detroit in 2003, they get knocked off in the first round by Sacramento, allowing the Storm to have home court advantage. Also memorable from that part of the playoffs, Sue Bird, in their second game of a sweep against Minnesota in the first round, breaks her nose for the first of what turned out to be several times, and has surgery the day of Game 3 of the Western Conference Finals against Sacramento, comes back, plays great. I think she had, like, double-digit assists. Storm went on a huge run, like 18-0 or more in the second half of that game to pull away, clinch the finals. Uh, and then in front of full houses at Key Arena for both Games 2 and Game 3 of the finals, survive Game 2 when Nikisha Sales of the Sun misses at the buzzer, a shot that would have won Connecticut the championship. And then get a comfortable win in Game 3 for Seattle's first major pro sports championship in 25 years. There we go. I ticked that one off on the uh, <clears throat> Storm whatever. Bingo. bingo. Yeah, I was there. There you go. Did you did you get any bingos? I didn't get any bingos. No, being fired by the Storm was somehow not oh, on there. No. <laughs> I somehow only got one bingo, which was... A lot of the things were like pretty fan-centric. Yes. <clears throat> Attended, I think this is attended games one or two of the 2018 WNBA Finals. Owned something signed by Sue Bird, which I have a Wheaties box that has all the uh, championship team from 2010 signatures on. I just uh, interviewed Sue Bird. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Have photo with Doppler. Have a lot of photos with Doppler. And went to the championship parades. I'm two for three on that one. So that, that was my storm bingo. Uh... <laughs> I got fired for doing the train, of course. <laughs> so the other part of my job went pretty well, because the Sonics, after a disappointing 03-04 season, and an offseason where basically the only thing that happened was they lost Brent Berry and drafted Robert Swift, who wasn't going to play at all. 
They came into the the 2004-05 season with no expectations whatsoever. When you uh, say that transaction, and you're trading out Brent Berry for Big Bob Swift, I mean that wasn't like specifically a trade. I guess they the Danny Fortson was the big marquee addition. That, that's what I was going to say. They didn't have Fortson before then. The baddest man in pigtails. Uh, but expectations were not high. Nate McMillan came into that year in the final year of his contract as a lame duck. No expectation and extension. The Sonics then lose their season opener in LA to the Clippers by 30 points. Wow. And you're like, oh, God, what is this season going to be like? Were we at the David w- Pelton's house that night? No, I I watched that in <laughs> some sort of terrible casino on uh, on Aurora Avenue with uh, Brian Robinson. It's my second consecutive year remembering watching it. This one I was actually successfully able to watch. Uh, and I have a distinct memory after that game. That was Brian Davis's first game as a sideline reporter for Fox Sports. And I asked him, so, you know, other than the outcome, how did he, how was the game? And he was like, well, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? But the Sonics then went on to win their next nine games and started 17-3 and after sweeping two of the three Texas teams, the Spurs, who would go on to win the championship, and the Dallas Mavericks, who were also a quality team, in the first road trip I ever made as a member of the, there we uh, go. the Sonics, flying on the team plane, etc. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you're you're going to call that a name drop somehow. You're name dropping a plane? <laughs> I had lunch with Calabra. I guess that's the name drop. Oh, uh, there we go. And then got a win in Charlotte on New Year's Eve to finish 2004 at 22-6. Wow, I do not remember that win in Charlotte on New Year's Eve at all. Oh, uh, you should remember it. because Did we go bowling? The, no, the bowling was 2005 New Year's Eve. Oh! I'm sure. Look forward to discussing that. That day, we went to the Husky men's basketball game against Cal. They played on New Year's Eve. In the afternoon. Oh, man, I sort of. What did we do after? I don't know. I watched. I watched the Sonics game. Did we? We might have stayed at Grandma and Grandpa's and drank. That sounds right. <laughs> okay. So speaking of UW men's basketball, uh, w- quickly. I mean, we'll talk more about that Sonics team. You know, five next year at L five, but there was a lot of steam around this time period. I feel like this fall going into that spring in 2005, just, like, the world was just really fun, right? Like, there was a lot of fun stuff happening. If you were paying attention to that Sonics team, it was like, they were awesome, and we liked them in a way that I didn't like a team since the campaign era, right? Like, Danny Fortson... I mean, probably the 98 team with Vin Baker. I don't know. Like, Danny Fortson... We cared about my girlfriend at the time, so we would go to the games. And I'm pretty sure this started this year. You had gotten seats, so you got good tickets, right? Yes, that was the year I got team season tickets. But we kept our season tickets in 208 at the time. And so what we would do is me and our cousin Chris and my girlfriend and Jan, all four of us would go to the games. And what we would do is we would trade at halftime. So I think typically me and Chris would sit the first half. And this is the, the insane thing to think about long term, more insane than anything that happened in sports or music in that year, is that I would go to these games with my girlfriend and she would sit with Jan <laughs> and not me. <laughs> to pro- like to process that now is just like, how in the fuck did I get away with that? 
and I would sit with our cousin Chris. So we would sit in the first half in in the 100 level tickets, and then at halftime move up to the 208 seats, right? And it was incre- It was the perfect setup. Like having that season with those players and those people around, you're just like, this is everything was perfect about it. And she loved. My girlfriend loved Danny Fortson. Was like in love with him. I think maybe that's how I got away with sitting with Chris every game. <laughs> but like all the better for her to stare at Danny Fortson during the second half when she was down low. She was obsessed with Danny Fortson. He was a beat. He was tough as hell. Like he was unlike really any player that the Sonics had had since I don't know Frank Burkowski or whatever. Like, but but there was there's not been a season really like Danny Fortson's. He he might have led the league in true shooting percentage. He was right up there. He obviously led the league in foul rate by a mile. Might have led the league in offensive rebound percentage. Like, just when Danny Fortson came on the court, shit was happening. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was bad shit. I think he may have gotten tossed from that game on New Year's Eve, if I recall correctly. (laughs) Oh, he was was fiery. Like, Danny Danny Fortson came in and was like, he was the reason the team was so good, right? I mean, it was the bench in general. Like, well, the, who, who else was on the bench then? Did we we have Reggie well, Evans coming off the bench, or was he starting? Yeah, Reggie was starting with Jerome uh, James. Those were your big men. Those were your big men. Oh my coming god! Coming off the bench, a young man I like to know is Vlade Radmanovic. Oh, Vlade. Antonio Daniels. God, I loved Antonio Daniels. And then Nick Collison is a rookie. Man. So that's that was a squad. So like, were they you go starting back to... Luke as a rookie, or is he just not second year? He was in the second year. He was starting. Weren't Luke and Nick drafted the same year? But Nick had the shoulder surgery. Before oh, so he sat out a year. season, I see. So the starting lineup, they managed to score points with the starting lineup. I mean, obviously... There was, <laughs> they had was Rihanna a, and Richard Lewis. Those were a big factor. There was a lot, a lot of weight on Rihanna. I mean, there was a Hall of Famer in there and, like, a perennial all-star, so... But I, I also want to note that Luke Ridnour made, I guess it wasn't his first career start. He'd, he'd started a few games by this point. But uh, on my birthday in 2004, playing against Steve Nash and the Mavericks, had 16 points on 8 of 11 shooting, 13 assists and at the end of the, his rookie season as the Sonics beat the Mavericks by 20 points. There we go. Uh, but yeah, that, that team, Antonio Daniels and Danny Fortson were like, <clears throat> and we loved Rain Richard. But, like, Antonio Daniels and Danny Fortson, they were a revelation. They were the <laughs> players who we felt like, and they, I mean, they kind of were. Like, obviously, Ray being healthy and Richard sort of coming into his own were a huge deal in the start of 2004. But there was nobody who we cared about more than Danny Fortson. What was he like in person? <laughs> Do you remember funny. I mean, two of my favorite Danny Fortson interview memories – Number one, I'm pretty sure I was there for this one. There was one time where he was asked whether he lifted weights, and he said, if I lift weights, I don't fit through doors. Uh, and then the other one, I remember this early in training camp, someone was like, oh, this actually was an in, in interview of Reggie Evans, I should say, about Danny Fortson. Or no, I guess it was, I, I forget exactly what it was, but someone was like, hey, you t- I guess it was Danny, are you teaching Reggie Evans any tricks? And he was like, no, I'm learning them from Reggie Evans. Yeah, he's grabbing some nuts. Reggie was crafty. Danny Fortson, there was nothing crafty about him. Did he end his career with the Sonics? Wow. Fortson? Yeah, I mean, he barely played the next two seasons and then was out of the league. It's kind of incredible looking back at it that in that year he only scored seven and a half points per game. Because I uh, remember him being a factor. 
he actually was ejected on New Year's Eve 2005. <laughs> like, Danny Fortson only playing 62 games and scoring 7.5. Well, he put up 16.7 one year with Golden State. Like, yeah. Danny Fortson. I mean, uh, he was he was a big-time player early in his career. That that season was just like... he just Was he injured all the time? Man, he did not really come close to playing almost ever a full season. Uh, 682 true shooting percentage that season. 18.4 offensive rebound rate. And what was his fouls per 36? Uh, 9.1. Somehow he didn't lead the league. I don't know how that's possible. <clears throat> just an incredible season. I guess he just didn't play that many minutes. But when he was in, he made a difference. Oh, for sure. Okay, now let's talk about UW men's basketball. Because they were back, baby. And it sure didn't look like it. Early in the 2003-04 season, they started the season 5-8. and 0-5, lost their first five games in Pac-10 play. And then game number six, at Oregon State, they're down 16 with, a, with less than 11 minutes left in this game. Do you remember the Oregon State Reserve? who made five three-pointers in this game. Oh, God. No, I've, no I, I wasn't paying attention at all at this point. Uh, this was before the Arizona game, right? Yes. I remember okay. watch, watching this game with the famous cousin, Katie. Uh, but actually, I don't know. That doesn't actually make... Yeah, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> of These course there just... was a shitty Oregon State Reserve who hit five threes in the game, though, because there just is always... Angelo Sagarakis. Oh, I'll Sagarakis, of this course, guy. yes. Yeah. If we would have had just, a Google Hangouts chat in 2005, you would have been, or 2004, you would have been fucking livid about these shots. Because the Fox Sports announcers kept going on about what a great shooter Sagarakis was. He shot like 31.5% from three, and then basically like never played the next two seasons. Uh, Nate Robinson makes a three at the end of regulation to tie it up. Huskies go to overtime, uh, pull away there, beat Oregon State. And then go on, much like the Sonics had that run at the start of the 0405 season, won 12 of their next 14 games. The lone loss is coming at UCLA and at North Carolina State in a kind of bizarre, in hindsight, mid-season uh, non-conference game. Julius Hodge, was he on that team? Yes, Didn't he was. We, we played them again next year, right? The next year? It was a home-and-home, home, yes. They played yeah. in, in Seattle in, in home. I remember listening to the 2005 one. Uh... The 2004 one was Nate Robinson had one of his best dunks in that game. Really? Yeah. It was like a put-back dunk in that one. That I remember amazing. sitting upstairs, because you weren't living at our house anymore, and I remember sitting upstairs watching TV and watching the scores. I don't know what the fuck I was watching. Seeing the scores go through, probably Frazier, um, seeing the scores <laughs> go through at the bottom. And it was like UW, or I guess it was ESPN, so I had to be watching something on there. It being like UW whatever, Arizona, whatever. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> I'm like, we beat who now? Yeah. Because that was a notable Arizona team, right? They were in the top 10 at the time, had Channing Fry was on that team. Uh, who else was on that team? Who was a top 10 had, pick shortly thereafter. They had five NBA players. Andre Iguodala was still on that team. Oh, my God. Hot Sauce, Hassan Adams, Salim Stoudemire, who was amazing, and Mustafa Shakur was the fifth NBA guy on that team. Well, the next year was that was the year that Salim was so good, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. Or, or is that this year? No, was, no I think that was, was the next year. So the Huskies beat Arizona home and away during the stretch. <laughs> so insane. And then 
the season finale, Stanford comes to town undefeated on the season, number one in the country. I One of the things I distinctly remember, so this was my senior year at UW, and I'd had season tickets the entire time, obviously. And, like, it used to be just you'd roll up ten, five minutes into the game and go sit in the dog pack in the sixth row, and it would be fine because no one came to the games. And that final weekend, the Cal game was the first time that I like had to get there early and just barely got a seat in the dog pack section. And I was like, wow, this is very different. And the end of the game, uh, once the win is decided, everyone starts chanting, bring on Stanford or something like that. And that game, like people are lined up hours beforehand. So I was sitting up in the rafters for that one, which I sometimes went and sat there by choice, even when the It's always better than the rafters. Yeah. Uh, that is still my favorite UF men's basketball game of all time. There we go. They were number one. Yeah. And it was just like, it's the start of a new era. There's never been a moment like this since I've been at UW. Maybe not ever. We really expected to win. That's the crazy thing. Like, there was so much steam behind the program at the time, and everybody had rallied around. And the, yeah, I mean, we were so like, hot. Going into that game, it was like, fuck Stanford. They're not going to beat us. I mean, Stanford and, also was kind of fraudulent. They were 16th in the sports reference SRS that season. Uh, Ken Palm had them 12th. Well, they ended up losing in the second round in Nevada that year, right? At Key Arena. They lost two times all season, both in Seattle, both games I attended because Mom randomly got somehow tickets for that second round of NCAA tournament games on the Saturday uh, where both Stanford and Gonzaga got upset. Kirk Snyder got him. Kirk Snyder. Who later that year, when asked his weakness, would say exposure. Yeah. Oh, loved Kirk Snyder. He was right. Uh, so the Huskies beat Arizona again in the Pac-10 tournament semifinals before losing to Stanford in the final. And we weren't sure they were going to get into an NCAA tournament spot at that point because of the fact that their their overall record was still not great. They were 19 and 11. Uh, but it they would ended have been up getting... pretty insane not to have put them in. But yes, we we were definitely nervous about it on Selection Sunday. They were so hot that it was hard to keep them out. They end up getting a nine seed and matching up with UAB, UAB in the first round. A team. Uh, Mike Anderson was at UAB. That was a really fun UAB team. They had that dude with dreadlocks, I remember, who had long dreadlocks. I mean, I think they had multiple guys with dreadlocks. Because they had the Johnson Twins, right? Or no, it was the Taylor Twins. And then Squeaky Johnson, who later had a cup of coffee in the NBA. Squeaky Johnson. And uh, He sounds they, like an ABA player. He 100% does. They beat the Huskies 102-100 in a thriller in the opening round of the NCAA tournament before beating Kentucky as the number two, uh, the number one they seed. They went on to beat Kentucky? Yeah. 76-75, <clears throat> reached the Sweet 16, and then lost by 26 to Kansas. Uh, it, it was a devastating loss to UAB. Just having an end. It was a devastating things. loss, though. Well, it, it was fun. Like It was such a fun game playing against them, and it was exciting to be back in the tournament, but it's one of those things where you're just like... <sighs> Truly happy it's, to be there. It just sucks that it's over, you know. And you're like, <clears throat> what we just experienced was so fun. Yeah, it's like uh, your theory about you know you just want to win to keep the season going longer. Yeah, we just wanted more basketball. So, but at the same time, it really felt like I think we had this feeling at the time. I don't think this is retroactively assigning this to it. I think we had the feeling like 
this is going to be a program long term. I mean, at least for the next few years, because I mean, the core of that team was so young. You know, the, the there's a poster lineup. that I think is still on the ceiling in my childhood bedroom. That there's no, no going back child- when you're running with the pack. It's in my childhood bedroom, friend. Uh, it's on the ceiling in mine. Maybe we had maybe we had it both up. Maybe you moved it. Uh, Curtis Allen, though, <clears throat> he was yeah, the Curtis only, only real one senior team. on that team. Yeah, but the rest of the guys. I mean, you're starting. Roy was a sophomore. Jensen was a well, he was also a sophomore. That's right, because he was part of that that next team. Uh, Conroy was a junior. Bobby Jones was a junior. No, Bobby Jones was a sophomore, and Nate Robinson was also a sophomore. Was the it was two years? What did they do next? The next year? I guess we'll talk about this in 2005. This was not uh, the, the year they lost to UConn, though, right? Two years later was when they lost to UConn. What did they do in between? They were the number one seed. Oh, kill me. <sighs> we'll get to that when we get there. They were the number one seed. For now, let's talk about the Seattle Seahawks, who were NFC West champions. Hello! In 2004, at 9-7. and seven. Huge. A really lopsided year in favor of the AFC, where two 9-7 and seven teams missed in the playoffs, where in the NFC, both wild cards were 8-8. Eight and eight. So the Seahawks were going to make the playoffs either way, but they managed barely to make up for beat... it with like two decades of superiority for the NFC after that. Yeah, they well, we had a there was a long period of time where the NFC West was not very good, but the Seahawks favor barely beat a Falcons team playing then backup Matt Schaub at quarterback at home in the final game to claim that clinch the division. The Falcons had already uh, had already clinched the NFC South. Mike, Mike Vick was the starter. Vick played the first almost full first half. Falcons went up 17-7 in the game. And then the Seahawks took the lead, but then survived a two-point attempt with no time remaining on the clock. Wow. The Falcons had a work done run that came up just short. And wow. was reviewed. I have no done. memory of this game. I That is gone. That I paid attention this year, but that is definitely gone. But I do remember the next week when they then hosted the Rams in the wild card game. Uh, the Rams, who had previously come into CenturyLink Field and erased, like, a three-touchdown half Yeah, that, that was one. So there was a Sonics game that night that I showed up too late. I think no, it was, no. I was going to say it was obviously a Sunday night. That I was, no, was, no. I the, was like, this game The Seahawks-Rams game? Yeah. No, it wasn't a Sonics game. It was game two of the WNBA Finals. That I was driving to? Yeah, because that was played in October. Oh, I guess that makes sense. So I was driving, I was listening to the game, or I was watching the Seahawks game, and I was like, this is over. I can go to the Sonics, or to the, I guess, the Storm game. Uh, I remember I went at halftime and checked the score because, like, I didn't have a computer with internet in 2000, at that point in 2004. I subsequently did by Sonics season, but we hadn't figured it out yet. And so I went to, like, the computer in the media room to check the score at halftime. I was like, all right, Seahawks got this one. And it wasn't until hours later, much like you, that we found out they lost the game. I was listening to it on the way and being like, it's all falling apart. There's like, actually... Ricky, Ricky Pearl fucked us again. No, I, don't... I think Tori <laughs> I wrote... had a good game. My, my piece about the Storm winning the championship, I'm like, you know, this... Seattle hasn't won a championship in so long, and they've got the history of always losing the big game. And so I went through like various examples of this. And for the Seahawks, I put just the Seahawks have last Sunday. So in this game, in the wild card game, Seahawks down seven with 27 seconds left, faced fourth and four at the Rams five, and a Matt Hass pass 
went through Bobby Ingram's hands, which was kind of fitting for the entire season where the Seahawks were number two in the NFL in drops. And that was kind of the big storyline about the team. Yeah, that was the year we started caring about drops. That's all we cared about. I wrote a Football Outsiders piece about drops because it was such a big deal. It was a really like it was a pretty good wide receiver core. It wasn't like the wide receivers in general were bad. Well, Daryl Jackson was quite good. He was tied for second in the NFL with 11 drops. But Cord Robinson, things fell, started to fall apart there. He uh, su- was suspended for four games for a substance abuse violation and then also missed two games for violation of team rules and still tied for fifth in the NFL with 10 drops. So that's why they had to trade for Jerry Rice, who was 41, I think, in his final season. <laughs> I didn't know, I realize that they traded for Jerry Rice. I didn't remember Me that. Me neither. I, I assumed he had been a free agent, but he was—he was—it was a trade. Uh, Corin Robinson would not be back the next year when bigger things were in store. What what did the Seahawks trade for Jerry Rice? Uh, Pro Football Reference just has it as like it must have been a conditional draft pick. They've just got it as an undisclosed 2004 draft pick. And what team was he on? The Oakland Raiders. Okay, he was on the Raiders. Because he only played for two games until that brief stretch for the Seahawks. Only the two Bay teams. So Seahawks legend, Jerry Rice. UW football bottomed out for the first of two times. <laughs> this is I their think first the, bottoming out. I think this actually is the worst UW football team, <laughs> at least of our lifetimes. I can't say ever, but uh, went one in ten with their lone win coming over San Jose State. Their closest Pac-10 call was a 28-25 Apple Cup loss to Wazoo. Casey Paz took over for Cody Pickett, and was not great. Wow. Do you remember we went to the opening game of this season? This was before... I went to Bumbershoot right after. Absolutely. Zach Tuiasasopo had a long run. Did he? The Fresno State game. Yeah. And the Seahawks lost badly to Fresno State (laughs) in a a troubling side of what was to come. The Seahawks, yeah, they would have beaten Fresno State. Uh, that's all that I remember about it is we, we got tickets randomly. This was the first, that was the first UW game that I went to really not. It wasn't like it was, there was terrible talent on the team, but really the quarterback was so bad. They just really couldn't make up for it. But you look at it and you're like, these players aren't horrible, right? No, in this game, Casey Paz went 18 of 39 for 183 yards and three interceptions. Well, in a school that's had pretty good quarterbacks basically our entire lives, having Casey Paz as your primary quarterback for an entire season is just like, how the fuck did that happen? But, yep. I guess it happens. The next year, was Stanbeck starting? Yes. Okay. Was he on the team this year? Yes. He played off the bench at times. In that game, he went 105 with an interception. Let me just read through to you a list here. There are actually a couple things that don't uh, fit, but maybe more recently. I'm going to start in 1984. I could even go farther. We could go back all the way to Warren Moon. But yeah. let's start with Hugh Millen, Chris Chandler, Kerry Conklin, Mark Burnell, Billy Joe Hobart, Mark Burnell, Damon Heward, Brock Heward, Marcus Tuiasopo, Cody Pickett, Casey Paws, <laughs> Isaiah Stanbeck, Jake Locker. This is the other one that doesn't really fit. Ronnie Fouch, Jake Locker, Jake Locker, Keith Price, Siler Miles, Jake Browning, Jacob Eason. Like, all told, the starting quarterback for UW has been 
a good or NFL caliber player. I mean, and Fouch was just a backup. Like, he was playing because Jake Locker was injured that season. In 2008, yes. Yeah. So, like, going into the season, and honestly, like, okay, if you look at next career, NFL, 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 CFL, or whatever, most of them are NFL. In fact, there's a run from, I don't know, like, 1976 through Casey Paws where every single one of the quarterbacks that the Huskies had went to the NFL. <sighs> and really after that as well, you know, like Siler Miles didn't, but and Keith Price never played in the NFL. But like these were NFL caliber players. And then just going into a year with Casey Paws, they, they weren't able to compete at that point, whether it was the firing of Rick Neuheisel or whatever happened. I, who knows? But like this was a terrible season with no and- hope at all. And Keith Gilbertson was fired after the year and Thank replaced God. by Tyrone Willingham. Boy, things did not get much better the next season. Oh, boy. Uh, speaking of bottoming him out. I feel like there was still a little bit of steam by the next year, though. Maybe yes. not steam, but, like, there was some excitement around the program by the next year. There was some reason for hope. Speaking of bottoming out, this the Mariners, after having come close but missed the playoffs the previous two years, dropped to 63-99. and 99. In Edgar Martinez's final season, the two highlights that year, Ichiro's 262 hits broke George Sisler's single-season record of 257. I remember well. I believe we may have played in the best of episodes 101 through 200 a a debate where you you complained about how meaningless that record was. I remember watching. I watched it. We watched it at Grandma and Grandpa's house, and everybody was like fucking cheering and saying, It's like, yeah, dog, great. You hit the most singles in a year ever on a shitty team. Congrats, bro. Love Ichiro. Big shows to Ichiro. Uh, Also, that was the Bucky Jacobson year where he had nine home runs. Wow. He got himself a a radio career out of 2004. In his only major league season. That's Seattle Sports in 2004. Let's talk about music. It's a pretty good year. I mean, by the time we get to 2005, everything's getting pretty good in Seattle sports. Uh, speaking of pretty good years, though. Oh, boy. The debut albums in 2004. I just, I guess, I, do we want to talk about debut albums specifically? Yeah, let's just go through those first. Okay, what do we have? We have the college dropout. Uh-huh, heard of it. Yeah, young man named, that young man's name was Kanye West. Uh-huh. Uh, we have... The Funeral, mm-hmm. the Arcade Fire debut. We have Franz Ferdinand's self-titled debut. <laughs> we have Hot Fuss from the Killers, and then Mad Villain with Mad Villainy. Uh-huh. <sighs> 2004. So <clears throat> uh, I was paying basically, no, like I mentioned, I, I was basically paying no attention to any mainstream hip-hop by 2004. And... I remember seeing Kanye West on, I'm pretty sure it was Regis and Kelly. (laughs) It was over the summer and he did through the wire. Cause like the incredible thing about Kanye West is that who he, like the whole story when he started. And I think this happens for a lot of artists, right? Like Drake was on Degrassi or whatever, but like the story when he started has transformed so much over time to what we think of Kanye as now. Oh. And it was like, confidence was definitely part of it, but like, Kanye was the dude who got into the car accident. He rapped with his jaw wired shut. Yeah. 
or whatever. Like through the th- wire. That was that was who Kanye was. And it was like there was also sort of like the college stuff and wearing the pink polos. But like I was like, oh, yeah, he's that car accident guy. And I remember him doing through the wire on Regis and Kelly or Kathy Lee at the time. And I was like, wait, this is actually awesome. And I got a burn CD of the college dropout. I've never once I think we might have bought the CD at that Tower Records going out of sale business sale. We talked about last week, which I'm pretty sure happened in 2004, that Tower Records by Key Arena was going out of sale or out of business. And I listened to that CD, the burn CD of the college dropout. It was so much that it broke. Like, I listened to it over and over and over again. Every single lyric from that CD is burned into my soul (laughs) in a way that, like, I... There are Kanye records that I like better, but there's definitely not a Kanye record that I know better than the college dropout. And it was just like, this is all that I care about. And liking Kanye wasn't like, it wasn't a thing to define yourself by in 2004, you know? Like, it didn't mean anything. So I was just a, a CD that I liked, you know? Yeah. It, it was just like, I like this Kanye, Kanye West CD, and I think it's pretty revolutionary. But it wasn't like, I'm like a Kanye West stand or something. It just, it was just an artist and what Kanye meant transformed so much after that. Uh, but the college dropout was pretty much, we sort of been circling it where I think a lot of these artists, like, yes, their debut record, but there was still, it takes years to get there, you know? And like Arcade Fire had an EP beforehand, like things were building up to this point. Kanye had been producing major, major songs, which he describes at the end of the CD in a long story, which (laughs) You're just like, what is this? But also, I love it. You know, like the idea that you would have like a pretty long song of just Kanye talking and telling a story. You're like, that shit never happens. Right. But it's fucking cool. Uh, I still don't understand who this person was that Kanye was like complaining about who was spending their entire life in school racking up diplomas. I've been there. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I, I, that's what I'm talking about. About, you, you're, you're always so angry about this. I'm not angry about it. I mean, I am angry. You know, I don't like skits. <sighs> you know that everything I want, I gotta wait here, wait here. I totally feel that right now. Wow. We feel you, Kanye, 2000, in 2004. Kanye truly ahead of his time. We're right there with you. Uh, <clears throat> but, this this album all the way down to the videos like every single part of it i remember like i was probably maybe my most atheist in 2004 and hearing as you're wont to be i guess as a 19 year old and hearing jesus walks like the the storm that was happening inside of me <laughs> when hearing that song and just being like fuck it i give in <laughs> i'm like you win kanye this is you <laughs> this is yours uh Anyway, college dropout. So then, a funeral by Arcade Fire. I remember KXP also was hammering Arcade Fire. Like I'll give KXP credit. They good decision. They were on this one early. They played a deck the hall ball. Not that deck the hall ball. Oh my god, what was the KXP holiday show is called? Not deck the hall ball. Oh, I, it was like, oh man, I have to look this up. The KXP like winter shows. It was at Numos. It wasn't at, like a big thing. And Arcade Fire headlined, 
And I swear to God, they were talking about that for so long after. Where, like, Arcade Fire puts on an incredible show, like we've seen, and there's this giant band on stage at the Numo stage. Like, it must have been incredible. Another one that was 21 Plus, so I couldn't go to. I was very pissed. Also, that same year, I'm pretty sure 21 Plus, Dizzy Rascal, and the streets together at Numo's. And, (laughs) which in 2004 was an incredible show. But Arcade Fire playing at that, that KXP winter benefit show or whatever like they talked about that for so long and i sort of resisted arcade fire a little bit at the beginning and now you listen to funeral and like i think it came out in winter of that year was the exact release date no i don't think so september 14th so to to me and i had no idea that they're from montreal or whatever but like when you listen to it now you can hear like the snow on the ground and like 9 p.m. and it's cold and you can just feel the street lights on the snow on the ground like the whole the whole mood of it and there's like five songs that are perfect songs but the whole thing in general just five songs that are perfect songs there's five songs that really stand out beyond everything else right yeah like the, the singles are perfect songs basically every single one we're talking about perfect songs but in general the whole thing just the mood and you're like i've never been to montreal before but i can tell that this is what i've i've been outside in the winter when it when it is snowed and you can see the like orange street lights shining down on the fresh snow that's what funeral sounds like okay and there are not that many albums that feel like a time of like a mood like that being able to like encapsulate that is huge. 2004 also in music, like the, the killers. I remember hearing, I barely listened to the end, but I remember hearing, uh, somebody told me was the first single from that record. And to me, it was always like the biggest song. And then I like years later, I was like, wow, Mr. Brightside, sure. Popular (laughs) song. Yeah. You know, it's that. I'm like, Eric Roberts, huh? Him. Hmm. Never imagined it. But somebody told me it was always like the premiere song, Got It at Best Buy for six ninety nine, as I did with so many music at this time. There's so many albums at this time. And so many music. So many music. I mean, this, this is such a fully formed album. You know? Absolutely. I mean, top to bottom, every song. Brandon Flowers, like listening to it now, there's some things that I don't think you can appreciate as a 19-year-old that when you can look back on, especially working in music, I'm like, Brandon Flowers is like a special artist as a singer. And hearing him sing, it's just like, God damn. Like, I don't think I fully grasped how good he was at that time, but also a band that was like glitzy. So I, I feel like 2004 was the time period that we started looking back a little bit more it was like we we had reached a certain rock stars again yeah we'd reached a certain trend of like indie had sort of happened or whatever in rock music and i mean it probably even goes back to grunge right people wanted like people wanted like rock music in the early 2000s, I think. And that's how bands like, I don't know what year the darkness came out, but like how shit like that became popular. But it's like the killers is kind of the best case scenario of it. It was like, there's not really like a lot of depth to the killers necessarily. 
They're from Vegas. Like, you don't want that. But the Killers were like, they were the perfect band for that moment when we needed a radio pop band to sound. And it was like a little bit electronic, you know, and there was like very 80s, colorful. It's fucking Vegas, right? I mean, the other one, another debut album, uh, is... uh, Black Keys? No, I don't think Black Keys is their debut album. I think Rubber Factory came out this year. Yeah, it's definitely not their debut. Yeah. Um, but the Hold Steady and Almost Killed Me uh. is one. Yeah, Rubber Factory came out in 2004. Uh, where it was like, this is classic rock music, but it feels different. You know what I mean? Where it was like, this is, it's classic rock music. It, has riffs it's heavy it's rock and roll it's drunken but you're like the voice is so unique and present where you're like this is different than anything that i've heard before and i feel like 2004 was really like an incredible year for that i mean i think franz ferdinand definitely falls into that and definitely franz ferdinand i mean like take me out and a little bit dancey like people were starting to feel comfortable and i mean the arcade fire like they were dancing on those songs this is still such a good album. Such a tight album. 38 minutes for Franz Ferdinand. The self-titled Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. And they would never be as good after that. <clears throat> no. I mean, I don't think The Killer is like, when you were young was, is good, but that's definitely still by far their best <clears throat> album. Hot Fuss? Yeah. Man, I don't know. You don't think so? What year did LCD Sound System come out? Oh, 2005. Okay. Yeah. Uh, d- definitely, we will get there next year. But it, it feels like a lot of these things were sort of the genesis for that. Like th- there'd gotten to be this little bit of like an element of people adding some cooler things into it, like a, a little bit dancey, a little bit throwback. Uh, <clears throat> also, the year of in two thousand four, rapping shit that just sounds good next to each other. The two greatest artists who care about how words sound, right? Not necessarily the content, but just thinking of like, how do these words sound orally when you're listening to it? And that is MF Doom and my boy Cameron. Both put out their best albums in 2004. (laughs) Purple Haze and Mad Villain drinking sake on the Suzuki we in Osaka paid, right? Like, you're just like, these dudes are obsessed with how words sound, right? Like, they don't care about the meaning or whatever, necessarily, but, like, pushing the grounds of what rap music is, musically, right? <clears throat> I would definitely say Lil John was pushing the grounds of what's, what is music. But Lil John is not, not, he's not focused on how words sound together. I, and that, that, is, that is what like Cameron and MF Doom at that time, they're bending words. They're making words like you don't need to pronounce it the exact right way. Just make it sound good. Uh, and that villain, I think MF Doom has been all over the place. Very strange career, but definitely reached the highest heights when he connected with Mad Lib and put out that album. Can we talk about Lil John for a moment? Well, let me, let me get through a couple of, couple of these more albums. <clears throat> or do we have to talk about... Let's talk about Lil John then, because it trans, trans, transitions to Chappelle's show. That's fair. 
Modest Mouse became a thing in 2004. Yeah. When we heard Float On was everywhere. When we heard Float On, things changed. (laughs) I've gotten one ticket in my entire life. I got pulled over. And I maybe two, but I've gotten one ticket in my Is this when you were driving by SeaTac Airport? Yeah. In my entire life. Wait, wait, wait. I've gotten one ticket in my entire life in SeaTac coming down from the Safeway. I had long hair at the time in 2004. Wow. Um, I was probably wearing a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. No, I was probably wearing a homemade Kanye West t-shirt. And I was listening to music so loud in my car, blasting music in my car, that some punk-ass cop pulled me over because I was having too good of a time and I was too youthful at the time. And do you want to know what I was listening to? Were you... (laughs) Were you listening to Float On? I was listening to Float On. These wow. kids and their heavy metal and their hip-hop. Sometimes life isn't okay. God. Uh, but that, I didn't really pay attention to Modest Mouse before then, but like, that that album, I'm just like, the world at large, the first second I heard that, the first song, to me, I guess it's technically because there's horn intro before then, world at large, one of the best first songs on any record ever. You just like again, just the, the feeling. Oh my god, that song! <clears throat> I can't complain. <clears throat> okay, a couple of other ones that came out in two thousand four quickly. Wait, but no, I got to talk about how Float On is responsible for one of my favorite tweets of all time. Yes. So in two thousand sixteen, Mike Baker, then at the Seattle Times, now at the New York Times, where he's doing amazing coronavirus coverage. Wow, Mike Baker. Yeah. Seattle Times? I'm like, the he guy was. from the coronavirus? Yeah, we had him. Wow. Let him go. So he tweets a headline from the Seattle Times in 2016, Portland. Modest Mouse Seer falls asleep, causes chain of car accidents involving a government truck and so two cigarettes. <laughs> and then Walter Hickey, then at 538 now of uh, something called Insider, uh, says, is this the same fucking guy who backed his car into a cop <laughs> car the other day? So good. Oh, my God. <clears throat> okay, quickly. A couple of other things that came out in 2004 that really mattered to me. I don't know if any of this has been quickly, but okay. A Grand Don't Come for Free by the Streets. Literally, that CD changed the way I was fancying myself quite a writer in 2004. And <laughs> by community college writing classes were so completely influenced by the streets at that time. I mean, I thought fucking Mike Skinner was the perfect artist. Uh, A Ghost is Born, the Wilco album that came out, the the sequel to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is secretly better than Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Uh, Yeah, I gotta disagree with you there, Chief. You're you're so wrong, boss. But I I listened to that last week. There's some tough parts of A Ghost is Born, man. What parts? The parts that are just like ambient noise. Oh my god, spiders and kid smoke? Uh, Theologians? They don't know nothing. Uh, Seven Swans by Sufjan, arguably the best Sufjan album. Definitely Definitely the most underrated. Well, and Sufjan, when before the maximalism of Come On, Feel the Illinois, where like, this was Sufjan at his folk peak. 
on Seven Swans came out the same day as the Hold Steady Almost Killed Me happened. Like, the, these things are probably so much more relevant to me as somebody who was 19 in 2004, but I'm like, can you believe that those two came out of the same day? <laughs> uh, more Adventurous by Rilo Kiley. Uh, Leviathan. <clears throat> and as we transition to... Ooh. That's Leviathan by Mastodon. As we transition to... The Bumbershoot lineup of oh. 2004, Drive-By Truckers in the Dirty South. I Again, this group seems to not have ever meant anything to you, but, like, the Dirty South, they fucking hammered this on KXP. They would play it nonstop. Every single song on the Dirty South is perfect. And I'm kind of shocked how much I'm talking about Drive-By Truckers and Let's Remember Some Years, but, like, this is... And it's probably the last that I will, but, like, this... Coupled with seeing Drive-By Truckers on not the mural stage, not the main stage, not the exhibition hall stage, the fucking stage that was, like, near the weird art thing, right, by the car toys. What would you even call that stage? <laughs> it's not there I, yeah. anymore. They have not yeah, had no, a no, bumper I, shoot in years. I, it's not been there any times. I, I didn't go to bumper shoot until very recently, so... This I moved out on quite a year in 2004. Before you ever even went to Bumbershoot, in the fucking Chihuly Garden and Glass stage of Bumbershoot, drive-by truckers closing out that stage was... It, I mean, it is, it is engraved in my soul seeing that. It's like the classic lineup, right? Patterson Hood, Mike Cooley, and Jason Isbell. And Jason Isbell throughout the show like i remember being transfixed him and his wife at the time shauna tucker who played bass just you couldn't help but stare at him right like you're like this is a fucking star it was the coolest shit that i had ever seen in the way that i'm t i was saying like people looking for something that's like a little bit more like it, this wasn't indie at all right this was a rock band from the south playing the show right like this is like seeing the allman brothers in their prime when you're watching this and jason is just slaying through these dirty south tracks like every single one of the people in that band all three of the songwriters in that band at their absolute peak and everybody in the bumper shoot crowd being into it like you don't get good crowds at a festival but that was like the coolest i'm there with jan Right? Like, it is me and Jan watching Drive-By Truckers, and I still am transfixed in this moment. Like, I saw the Pixies that year. No, this wasn't the other Pixies play. I think they played the next year. <clears throat> I saw. No, the, they, were, they were. That was that year. Okay, I saw the Pixies that year. And to me, the only thing that I really remember about this bumper shoot strongly was seeing Drive-By Truckers. It will never be. I was like, I'm going to work in live music. That's it. <laughs> I was watching wow. this, and I was like, this is. This is it. This is perfect. They finished the show by playing People Who Died by Jim Carroll. And it was like of Basketball Diaries fame. Uh, when they did that, I never heard the song at the time. It was like everybody in the crowd was so into it. And they played People Who Died. And I was just like, <laughs> it's like, I'm good. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of perfect. You, you, it's so rare to have a moment like that and to have so like these artists playing their best music that they will ever write, excluding nothing, every single one of them, the best music that they will ever write right after it. Just like such a peak. 
So it, it, it's it's a, like it's a unique situation. I'm seeing the Pixies 20 years after they've released their best music, right? Like this Jason is born 2012 or, or 2016 or whatever is still incredible. But like, hey, uh, and it's I have like, an important 2004 Bumbershoot question for yes. you. Did you go see Nickelback? I did not go see Nickelback. No, I was definitely so the days that I went. Looking through this lineup, Friday, September 3rd, the hometown throwdown, baby. With there our good are. friends, the presidents of the United States of America, headlining Bumbershoot, uh, opening for them, USC, United States of Electronica, and Death Cab for Cutie. And I remember Death Cab opened with the New Year, and I hated that song in 2004. I was like, I didn't, I didn't really what like Death Cab at all. I <clears throat> they had the seats on like Memorial Stadium, and I remember just sitting and like being like, God, I fucking hate this New Year song. And then, which is the worst song on Transatlanticism, if we're being honest. But I was like, can we just get through this to get to Pusa? <laughs> <laughs> Little did you know that later that year you'd be able to see them at a post game conference after or concert after a Sonics game. I've seen the presidents at after Mariners games, after Sonics games, at Memorial Stadium, at. At oh my god, White River Amphitheater at a um, what are the N N shows N Fest I guess. <laughs> uh, did you go to okay? So what did you see on Saturday then? I don't think I went on Saturday. Nickelback and Puddle of Mud played and Seal and Van Hunt. I went to none of it. I saw none of that. Oh, I mean Seal Seal would be fun. I don't think I went on Sunday September fifth either. Hip Hop one. I love that the shows were named around this time period. Uh, Hip Hop 101 with Nas, Public Enemy, Massive Monkeys, and local rapper Birdie, uh, which I also don't think I went to. <clears throat> and then on that Monday, that was when the Pixies headlined. And it was like, I just started getting into around this time period, like especially 80s alternative, and having the Pixies come back. I mean, it was a huge deal at the time, having the Pixies play this. You know, like, the impact of the Pixies coming back after a couple of decades was massive. Uh, and it was, it was also the first of many times that I've seen, and this is no offense to Built to Spill, who I love, but like seeing Built to Spill in situations where I'm like, oh, Built to Spill is playing. Like unintentionally trying to see, like you're at the, whatever, KXB holiday party or whatever, and it's like, oh yeah, Built to Spill is playing. That's cool. Uh, also on this year, uh, I guess I did go. That was Saturday? Because I went to go see Nancy Sinatra on that Saturday. So I must have been there. Uh, I did not see The Killers on that Monday, September 6th. That might have been opposite Pixies or something on the main stage. Uh, but also, going again with Jan. I was there with Jan a lot. <laughs> uh, on the mural stage, which was a pretty small stage, the Black Keys playing. And I remember being in the like concrete area of the front of the mural stage, seeing the black. I mean, they weren't a big band at the time. Like they, yeah. they were, they were a KXP band. And like I said, that album Rubber Factory had just come out. And I was like, and eh, there's this like kind of interesting like sort of blues throwback band, the Black Keys, who are playing. I was like, I guess I'll go. You know, <laughs> it, it really meant nothing to me at the time. I watched it. And I was like, that was kind of cool. And then I'm pretty sure that Drive By Truckers were that same night. I think I went to go see them and went directly to Drive By Truckers. Wow, My Chemical Romance played. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> oh, 2004. Right? They played in the in the Sky Church, My Chemical Romance, to probably maybe a thousand cap at most. And then, yeah, that's Saturday night. So I went from Black Keys. God, this is kind of wild to think about now. 
I went from Black Keys at the mural directly to Drive-By Truckers. That was Bumbershoot 2004. Man. I feel like we need to talk about American Idiot, which was such a big album that year. I've heard like two songs from it. That can't possibly <clears throat> be true. I've heard Boulevard of, Boulevard Boulevard of Broken, Broken Dreams. Dreams legitimately great song. America. I just, it, I, I did not care about it. In hindsight, maybe I was wrong, but it was like, this is not what I'm interested in. I'm an indie fan now. KXP would not play Green Day. But this is also in reference uh, to the state of America leading to that, the election that year. Uh-huh. <clears throat> do we want to talk about this now? I mean, let's do it quickly because we're already an hour and a half into this podcast. Okay. But... The election in 2004. I had become very political as, as a 19-year-old. <laughs> and up the street Everyone from our does house, it that age. We, lived, we live at the, in Boulevard Park at sort of like the bottom of a big hill, at the top of the big hill there was a big sign that somebody had put across from Southern Heights Elementary that said, vote Bush. Do you remember this? No. You were living there at the time. But this was a, this fucking mattered in 2004. This was like, I mean, I hated George Bush more than any human being on earth in 2004. And so they put up this huge sign that said, vote Bush at the top of the hill. It like very public. And at one point, midnight or something, me and a friend got a Sharpie and wrote do not on top of it. And then as we're doing this, a car drives by as we're writing this and they, they like drive up, roll down their window. This is literally like, I was terrified when this happened (laughs) as if we were doing this extreme act of vandalism and they rolled down their window and the person was like, Hey, and we're like, Oh God fuck <laughs> and she was like you need to write that bigger so people can read it we were like, <laughs> hell yeah there we go <sighs> so that that was my act of defiance in 2004 i mean i remember walking around the day after the election because i don't i don't know what we anticipate there's no I, there probably was a nate silver in 2004 but i wasn't paying attention to him there was not a nate <clears throat> silver in 2004 I can promise you that. Uh, was it 2008, the first time that Nate Silver... That was, like, when he really it burst was, yes. onto the scene. <clears throat> um, but... Nate Silver was busy doing Pakoda in 2004. <laughs> Wasting his time. Uh, we didn't We didn't know what to... You don't, When you don't have polling like this, and you don't have access to it, you're, it's kind of just a crapshoot. And you're like, I don't know, we'll see what happens. I've read America the book. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Which the Daily Show was also a huge deal in 2004. I think that was the I time mean, the that it really is, started taking off. We would never be surprised by the outcome of an election. <laughs> never would we go into the election thinking that one thing would happen and then something else entirely happens. Ah, Kill me. Unthinkable. Uh, <sighs> but I remember that being the day after the election, going to Highline Community College, home of Brian Scalabrini, and just like walking around so depressed. That was it. Was one of the darker days that I recall. I, I think post-election depression is uh, really something. <laughs> Those are a couple of the days that I remember feeling quite down. So <sighs> you're gonna feel things after an election, one way or another. Can I talk about the little John moment now? Yes. I mean, little John. What a time in 2004. So. I can't remember for sure if this was 2004 or 2005. I'd have to 
I'd have to do some research to try to figure this out. But at one point in this, Little John came to Seattle. I rode up the elevator with him. Oh my god! Because the Name Sonics offices. Again. <laughs> yep. Because the Sonics offices were in the same building as all the Clear Channel radio stations, who were also owned by Ackerley before I worked there, but for the Sonics, uh, and the team had been sold. And uh, you know he, uh, yeah, had the goblet. As I recall it, and then later brought the uh, some sort of gas, a gas gasoline can. of crunk juice that said crunk to juice the Sonics game. Was yeah. he friends with Jerome James? Yes, that was why he came to the Sonics God. game that night. And so I, James, a friend a of mine, legend. <laughs> that that year I had started doing like these live blogs from games, and early in the season I had used my celebrity sighting of the year on Mario Lopez. <laughs> And this friend of mine would never, never let me let it down, the fact that I had used that before Lil John showed up at the You, you didn't know. I mean, but that's why you wait to use Celebrity Side of the Year. You have to wait till the end of the year. Although somehow Mario Lopez, I feel like, is aged better than Lil John. I don't know about that one. <laughs> they were... He's, like, more in the public eye now than Lil John. And, you know, people were just... Although he's they, got they, those they commercials. really wondering... They were waiting with bated breath like the Oscars <laughs> on the Supersonics blog celebrity sighting of the year. If you would have said another one, the people would have called you on it in the wow. pre-Twitter days. Wow. <clears throat> you basically invented Twitter, though, if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, there were a little longer updates than tweets. The, these were, these more were like blogs. This was the I first mean, year of the blog. 2004, was it, it, was, it was the blog year. I mean, it was the blog year. It was the invention of the blog. So part of Little John's fame, the fact that he was parodied on Chappelle's show, which reached its creative peak in season two. I don't know if this was 2004, 2005. I, we can just talk about it now, though. Because, look, we're only an hour and a half into this. We were sitting at Jan's house in Boulevard Park, playing poker, of course, because that's what you do in 2004. And oh man, shuts the rounders. I remember you and our cousin Chris had seen the. It was, it was all season two was all in 2004. It, it pre- premiered on January 21st and ended on April 14th. Okay, that's perfect. Perfect timing. Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories. Life changing event. Some of the jokes which I didn't even get until very recently watching Purple Rain. About bathing yourselves in the waters of. Lake Minnetonka. Purifying your Purify yourself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> it was a funny line anyway, but now I understand what the context was. I mean, the the first one with Rick James was like the uh, cocaine is a hell of a drug. Like yeah. having <laughs> it was it was the perfect TV moment. Like if the internet would have existed in two thousand four, that would have broken the internet. I'm pretty sure there was an internet. But the, the, there was no Twitter. There was no place for us to really talk to each other about it. You would have to go on to message boards. True. And in 2004, when you and Chris described Charlie Murphy's True Elliot Stories with Rick James, and I didn't see it. I think it came out on a Thursday, and we were hanging out on a Friday playing poker, of course. That sounds correct. And you said that, and I was like, I have one mission in life, and it is to see this sketch. And I was like... <laughs> I, I don't care about any other goals that I have, right? All I need to do 
is see Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories with Rick James and eventually did. But it was like after that moment, Chappelle show was, it, it was mandatory viewing every single yeah. second of every single episode. Cause if you miss something, it would, it was like culture existed after that. Like it was one of those things where if you didn't see it in the moment, you were going to be behind the next day. I mean, some other stuff from that season. The racial draft. God. Uh, the 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 uh, quiz show. I know black people. Oh my god. Uh, and then at the end of the season, penultimate episode, the Wayne Brady show. <laughs> Wayne Brady, motherfucker! Like, oh my god. Uh, I mean. <clears throat> There has never been a better season of television than season two of Chappelle's show. Wow, you're I, calling it. I will say that, yeah. Wow. And then the Kanye West in common also, on, on the record, B after that. Yep. It, you're probably right. <laughs> and it holds up to this day. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I was watching the True Light Stories with Prince, which is like, it's still perfect. Yeah. I say that's never going to not be perfect. <laughs> Also in 2004, in television, the debut of a show that really burst on the scene called Entourage. Oh, hello. I tell you, I have never felt like older and out of touch. Last fall, uh, I hung out with Third Pelton Brothers, uh, Zach Whitman and Natalie Weiner, along with Natalie, one of Natalie's friends. Does that count as name dropping? Sure. Uh, I made some sort of entourage reference, and nobody else there had seen entourage. Wow, you said you think you want to hug it out, bitches? <laughs> I, I, I have no idea what the reference was. I was like, and I, I can't justify enjoying entourage as much as we did. Like, it, very few things have aged as poorly within the last 16 years as entourage has. But still, it was such a phenomenon. I mean, the steam behind entourage, so... Uh, previously mentioned ex-girlfriend, we, I mean, we would spend hours just sitting in her basement, also in Boulevard Park, uh, <clears throat> and like, they had HBO, we didn't have HBO, and I remember one time, this was way after the season had happened, like, it was probably 2005 that we actually started watching it, and I was like, oh yeah, there's this like weird show, it has the dude from, oh my god, Unhappily Ever After in it. Which is the show that we watched as kids. That's like how I thought of this show. Yes. I, was yes. like, I was like, it has like Jeremy Piven. Remember that guy? And the guy from um, un, the kid from Unhappily Ever After. I was like, I don't know. Let's just watch it. And then like, there's the Jane's Addiction theme. And I was pretty into Jane's Addiction in 2004. And I had that. I think it was called Strays off the top of my head. Then Jane's Addiction album. <clears throat> and I was like, I don't know. Let's just watch it. And then we watched the first episode. And then we watched every other episode that was available because it changed our fucking lives. I mean, my big memory is Bill Simmons writing about it at the end of the season in Tokyo that it passed the VCR clock test that you would look at the clock and see how long was left and be disappointed there wasn't more time. It, it really is true. Like that season of Entourage. Okay, so the first season was good and there was a lot of steam. I mean, there's a Gary Busey episode. Like people who shit on Entourage, look, it became a horrible TV show. Like, I, I do not question that at all. I think after season four, maybe, it became 
Yeah, once Ari got fired, and then all the, like, William Morris stuff, once they had that, which, like, most people don't really have, like, a view into what's happening in, like, high-powered, behind-the-scenes Hollywood. And Entourage was a view into that that we'd really never seen before. And, like, for me, the idea of seeing all these people who, like, managers and agents and shit, I was just like, this is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. Right? I was like, I want to do those jobs. Like, I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I was like, Ari Gold seems like the coolest fucking person on Earth. I was like, he's making shit happen. Right? I'm like, all these other people are secondary, but like, I'm like the agent, and agent makes shit happen. And then it became a terrible show. So I, I don't really question that, but like, I think it was in a, ter- in a terrible movie. Season five is where I'm going to say, like, I think it became a horrible show. But we continue to watch it out of loyalty. Uh, I think I stopped watching at some point. But like th- that, and then we're not like, coming back to Entourage. But the story arc where he's getting Aquaman, I think this was in. So me and that girlfriend had broken up the summer of 2006, right? Yes. Got a fever to. Confirm that for you. We were because you're part of this fucking story. We were so consumed by Entourage, it was like destination viewing every single Sunday. Like we we would wait all day to watch Entourage, and there was this story arc about Vince getting Aquaman. Like if this shit was on Netflix, I would turn it on tonight and watch it. But I had broken up with that girlfriend after, like, the first episode of the year. And then you still fucking went to her house and watched the rest of the season. (laughs) I had no means to watch the season of Entourage, but you went there. We had our own relationship. That's that's what I get for making her sit with Jan for basketball games for an entire fucking year. Yeah, yeah. Turn about his fair play, friend. God, you would be like, oh, yeah, crazy entourage yesterday. And I'm like, okay. I'm going to drink, drink more of this Carlo Rossi. <laughs> Apparently not. In, no, I guess by 2006. 2006, yeah. that's uh, the summer. It was. The other thing on television that I think needs to be mentioned here, 2004 was the summer of Ken Jennings. <laughs> oh, that was pretty fun. Which is remarkable because 2020 is also the year of Ken Jennings. There we go. Believe it or not, that actually happened in 2020 and not like five years ago, the Jeopardy GOAT tournament. Jeopardy was so hot back then. Yeah, Ken Jennings really, he mattered. I, I'm, I've never really stand Jeopardy in the way, I, I remember tuning in, I think a lot of us that summer started paying attention, because it happened over the summer, right, where there wasn't like yep. a ton of stuff on. It was really the perfect timing for Ken Jennings to have that run, and I think the Oh, Survivor debuted over the summer. Not that summer, I think previously. But, like, having things where you can have a moment, especially in the early 2000s, before everything happens all the time now. Like, summer was pretty devoid of television. So having something where... Entourage, same thing. I mean, HBO is part of the reason that stuff happens over the summer. Like, but for most people... I feel like the access to HBO has increased a lot over the last couple decades. And, like, those shows I hear about so much more now. I wasn't hearing about Sopranos or whatever. If I didn't have HBO, like, we had no idea really what was going on. Um, But being able to dominate the summer 
for something was pretty huge. And I think the timing for Ken Jennings was very incredible. Okay, before we hit the two-hour mark, let's go to movies because there were some amazing movies in the summer of 2004 helmed by Anchorman. Changed our lives. I don't think there's ever been a single word. Well, I mean, probably if you like a total TV series, yes, but a single movie that we've ever quoted more than Anchorman. Yep. It basically invented movie quoting. I mean, other things get quoted. Simpsons is quoted a lot, but as far as movies goes... Anchorman. And the thing is, I'm not mad. Yeah, milk was a bad uh, choice. No, no, I'm not mad. I'm proud. Uh, also that summer, Dodgeball, a true underdog story, which, did we watch it in the Tri-Cities with our cousins? I think we watched it in the Tri-Cities, and then so we, we immediately we went and played Dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to go buy balls so that we could go play dodgeball at like the tennis courts at Hanford High School. Absolutely. <laughs> what a what an amazing dodge, weekend. duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Like there's no better moment. It was, it's like I'd already stand Larry Sanders show too, so I was like Rip Torn, that's my guy. <laughs> I feel like that was about when I was watching uh, the Larry Sanders show on the replays that they had on Sunday night on, at on the CW like 11 p.m. on whatever channel that was. Uh, 2004, also Mean Girls. I don't know if I watched that in 2004. Probably the movie that's held up the best of all of these films. I mean, Anchorman <laughs> holds up pretty well. But yes, like Mean Girls has become such a cult classic. We've It's the only one of these we've been to a trivia for, hosted by your former coworker. For the record, I would go to a trivia for. Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. I mean, I watched that recently. I rewatched that for the first time since 2004, 2005, or whenever I actually saw that. What's up decently, Harold and Kumar? I've never Not been to bad. a White Castle. And, like, the only reason that I care about going to White Castle is because of this. <clears throat> I went to a crystal in New Orleans during All-Star Weekend 2008 for the same reason. A what? That was the cl- crystal is, like, the southern version of White Castle. You're looking this up? No. You're, you're fact-checking me? I'm not. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but I also want to say about that, I feel like this was the beginning of the NPH moment. Oh, yeah. We're going to get to that next year. <laughs> that, how H-I-M-Y-M is 2005? Him-Yim is 2005. Okay. Yes. So, uh, 2005, a big year in television. And lastly, Napoleon Dynamite, which was... I mean, Anchorman was probably still the biggest of these movies at the time, but Napoleon Dynamite was probably a close second, and it feels like it has completely disappeared from the cultural lexicon. Now. Uh, it hangs in there. Okay, so I also... Have to... I guess there's Uncle Rico references to Gardner Minshew. There, there is that. I have to give credit to Arrested Development in 2004, both the end of season oh, one yeah. and the beginning of season two. Like, Arrested Development... When we watched this, of course, me, not you, because I was about two to 15 years ahead of you when it comes to culture, like watching that show changed the way that we thought about sitcoms, especially this being on a network and the jokes being so dense and then coming back. It was, it was the first DVD sitcom was Arrested Development. Like that's fair. This was not, I remember watching it on Fox and like, they would always change the times. It was on like Monday night and Sunday night and it would change around. I think it was on Friday night for a while. And you're like, when is the show on? Like Fox really did Arrested Development dirty at the time, which it just wasn't ever meant to be a network TV show. But like 
once you got the DVDs of season one and season two, you're like, this is fucking brilliant. Okay, so we're pushing two hours, so we don't have time to go into this in too much depth. But the spring of 2004 was also the spring we discovered grilling. Because <laughs> previously we thought that back. barbecued hamburgers were terrible. Yes. Because uh, Jan would massive make sure that they were massively overcooked because of her concern about foodborne illnesses. There's so much food that I thought was bad because Jan was cooking it. <laughs> Uh, so that spring, it was us, the famous cousin Katie, and our cousin Chris, uh, repeatedly grilling and playing basketball, and specifically a lot of what we called the triple double, which was uh, two burger patties, two che- two slices of cheese, and I, it wasn't really two cut up hot dogs. It was a hot but... dog, but you cut it in half, so it looked like two. Right. I think we'd also have bacon in there too, though. Oh, that is true. Two slices of bacon, correct. What a moment. God, I just... Is it so much to ask to have a fucking time machine and go back to 2004? It doesn't seem like that much to ask. We weren't even drinking at the time. That's the thing that I think was wild. Like, we were barbecuing constantly, but we weren't even... There was a lot of drinking Dr. Bolt. We would drink, yeah, they, uh, we would drink soda. Like... Doctor, Doctor, give me the news parody involving Dr. Bolt. We would just... every Basically every single day, Chris would come down from UW. He was a freshman, I guess. Come down to Boulevard Park. We would go and play basketball for an hour or two hours, and then grill and then play poker. And like, why is that not my life right now? <laughs> because of your ten to fifteen children. That's God, the <laughs> I need to be telling them about this life and be like, "Look, I know you're three years old, but this is this is the peak of life. Look, we're gonna reach the peak on April sixteenth. It is playing basketball, barbecuing." And then watching Chappelle's show. Life is not going to get better than this. Oh, and then you're going to turn on the best indie rock record you've ever heard in your entire life. <sighs> Should we talk about 2020? I miss you, 2004. <laughs> <laughs> I think 2005 is – no, 2005 was a good year. I don't know, man. 2006, I remember, is the best summer of my entire life. But I think 2004 really might be up there with my favorite years I've ever lived. Yeah. I agree. 